Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To get even more content from me and Andrew, sign up for the Focus Compounding app. The Focus Compounding app costs $7.95 a month. It comes with a bunch of 2,000-word articles from me each week, a fresh batch of five-minute videos from the both of us, along with one bonus extra-long episode of the podcast each Saturday, and immediate access to our complete backlog of 200-plus episodes. To sign up, go to focuscompounding.com app or wherever apps are sold. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. This is part two to our uh, Q&A series. Be on the lookout for my Twitter account uh, about once a week, typically on Mondays. I will do a call for questions at Focus Compound, and you can ask a question directly there. Uh, the first question is actually my DM, so I'm not going to show the screen <laughs> okay. uh, from somebody. Um, and let's see. He said, hey, Andrew, I keep missing the Q&A uh, tweets. I figured I'd send some stuff. I've been wondering here and you could use it for the Q&A, uh, blah, blah, blah. It says, first one, Jeff talks about owning trust. And the, I want to actually talk about this because okay. since you said um, on the dividend paying stocks right. uh, video that we did for the app, I think it's also on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. You said that you would not really, if you were worried about income, you would look at trusts. And you know, right. there's a lot, a, a few different trusts that you would be very interested in uh, mm-hmm. for your personal capital. Um, but he says, so first when Jeff talks about owning trust, for income purposes, what type of trust is he talking about and how do you find them? And then he said, I would also love Jeff to look back on MSM. Seems like an interesting business and it seems super cheaper than before. Um, and then he has a couple other stocks, but maybe we could just okay. start with the trust because a lot of people have been uh, asking about yeah, that. Yeah, I don't think I can really give exact answers on that because they're really small trusts that look interesting and, and stuff like that. I don't know if I want to say all the names of them because i don't think it would interest people as much they're not the big trust that people know about and stuff they're microcap things that are some fluke thing that they exist there's some that are royalties on stuff um there's some that it's i guess technically it's not exactly a trust but uh it's a trust basically so we mentioned before the cemetery thing there's a thing that's um some coal and timber and stuff like that one there's ones that are just coal royalty override things um which can go to almost nothing at times. So that means you would have almost no income at times, but at other times on average out, it would work out fine. Um, generally things that funds and stuff, things like us wouldn't buy because of the tax things that it would cause for um, partners or for people in managed accounts and things like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stocks that you see that I think uh, people don't buy because of the complications of it. Sure. We have mentioned some trusts before, like Mills Music Trust and stuff. Mills mm. Music Trust isn't necessarily all that cheap all the time when we talk about it, but things in that category in terms of how much, how small they are, how illiquid they are, and what kind of things they are. That's copyrights on songs. So that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. I guess the right question is, if you were to look at a trust, what are some things you would be looking for? Trusts are pretty easy to value. Um, so you would just look for something that, you know, on like a DCF type basis looks really attractive. Um, as an example, let's say those copyright songs, Mills Music Trust. Um, if you thought the value of songs would go up 3% or something over time, and then you could get it at a yield that would be, uh, attractive, like, because basically your yield would become a real yield if they can, you know, if pricing can increase that much. Um, sometimes there's some complication stuff, uh, Mills Music Trust, which I wrote up. I think they're un- they don't get paid as much. 
from their um, music publisher as they should. And I think that's known and like they audited them before and stuff and got uh catch up payment on it and stuff. And that's very common. I think almost all publishers try to rip off the trusts and things that are, you know, different people are entitled to royalties um, and then eventually pay up on it. That's not unusual. Um, so there's little things like that, but it's a very simple thing to read up on. Um, all these things are like accidental stuff. I mean, we could get into it, but the trusts that interest me are ones that were never promoted and stuff as trusts. They were created for some reason, which would make sense for a trust where they had to resolve some legal issue or a family had no other way of doing this, or they had to spin something off sort of and get rid of something. Um, and you can read about the history of them sometimes in the trusts, but, uh, yeah. So like, as an example, there are trusts that are literally like royalties on stuff like natural, uh, like, yeah, there's natural gas, but there's also like coal, at some location and why is there a royalty on coal uh why is there a tradable trust um that's just royalties on a few mines that you could go look up and learn about uh, probably because there's some reason why the company ended up with them and then wanted to to turn them into something that could be monetized or whatever or at least separated from other parts of the business it was something non-core to them so yeah things like that not at all what people are thinking about with like you know uh, anything that gets promoted and that people are interested in all very small micro cap stuff, like almost nano cap. Usually a few are just very illiquid. Um, you know, the one I mentioned about the coal and the timber, you know, uh, a beaver coal is, uh, I think it's been around a hundred years or something. Mm -hmm. And you can look into the history of why it exists and everything. Yeah. Why do you think, and you just sort of said it a second ago, when you and I have talked about this, a lot of the companies we look at, mm -hmm. the way they go public, is usually kind of non-traditional. Yes. Why is that the case with a lot of the companies that we look at? Well, because I'm looking for something that's clearly and irrationally cheap. Mm -hmm. And the reason why something becomes clearly and irrationally cheap or clearly and irrationally overvalued usually has to do with the amount of promotion behind yeah. it and things like that. So this is true for Buffett too. Like he made investments in, if you look, blue chip stamps, had a very weird history of why that happened and even how he got some of his shares. I mean, Buffett actually bought shares in a um, grocer so that he could then go to the grocer who had been given the shares of blue chip because of the consent decree is a legal thing um, that had been distributed to them to swap shares in blue chip back to him for the shares that he had in them. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's the one. Um, then he had another one where he sent someone out to go find the shares and stuff. And that's because it had been a scam. And then it was a scam that turned legitimate. And actually, that's very common way of finding really good stocks, to be honest. If you can ever find stocks where the public company, the corporate form that you're looking at was at one time a scam, it was run by someone committing fraud, and then actually there's a legitimate business there and someone over time rehabilitated that and stuff, that honestly is the number one best way I've ever found to find um, a successful business that's just irrationally cheap and stuff. Once something was a scam, then people won't notice when other players in there turn it into something legitimate. And sometimes there are things like that where I, I've talked about this before and like try not to say the names of the companies and stuff, but there's a couple companies in the U.S. which clearly were a legitimate business. There was no doubt of whether they were fraud. However, criminals had major control of them or influence of them or affiliates of them had it. And so it became a real issue and no one would touch it when that was happening. And if eventually that situation changes, mm -hmm. then you have something really attractive that way. And that's even true for giant companies and stuff. Like people probably paid way too much for Tyco when it was doing acquisitions and all this stuff. And then once it all imploded, 
they probably valued it too low compared to what it could be broken up for its parts because it had been acquiring legitimate businesses all those years. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. So it's just kind of, it adds to, I guess, the off the beaten path. You know, a lot of those companies tend to be in that box because they have a negative shadow over them because of the history and stuff like that. Yeah. Even if the company today is not like what they were 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Next question and I guess this is, we have to answer this okay. because I am drinking a Celsius right now. It says, how about diving into Celsius? If one figure's odds are better than 50%, that it will reach 25% of Monster's revenue in the next five years, isn't it a good investment at this price? Well, we could figure that out mathematically. So let's go to quick FS, I guess. If you want to sign up for QuickFS, tell them you came from Focus Compounding. All right. All right. So um, the company's market cap today, I'll just use market cap and stuff. Okay, $1.5 billion. Then give me Monster. Oops, not that one. Okay. $43 billion. $43 billion, And he said 25% of their current revenue? That it will reach... 25% of Monster's revenue in the next five years. Okay. So that's $4.2 billion. Uh, oh, is the okay. current revenue. So 25% of that. So figure like a billion. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if it gets valued the same way as Monster, yes. The answer is yes. I mean, we could do some math on trying to figure that out exactly. But um, I. So that's Celsius reaching a billion in sales within five years. Right, do I believe the probabilities of what he, he's saying? No, I don't think so. Let's see what the probability said. He said 50%, 50% probably. Yeah. So the, it's gonna be up 10 times in five years? That's what he's saying, yeah. Okay. Um, but I guess that wasn't his question, right? His question was, so if they can do that, yes. is it a good investment at today's if price? If they can do it, yes. We don't have to worry about the probabilities. But yes, <laughs> I can do the math on that easily. So the um, so if they have the same valuation as Monster has now, but of course Monster's comp could decline and stuff, you can do that easily. Monster has a market cap of, I mean, so... Um, I'll pull it back up again. Yeah. So this can be simplified pretty fast. Monster has a market cap of 43 million. Divide that by four because you're assuming that... 43 billion you divide that by four rounded down you're still at 10 billion market cap on um celsius is 1.5 so you'd say okay well what's 10 billion you then take 10 billion and say okay what if there's a half chance that celsius goes to zero which is just i'm adding that in to make the calculation simpler um then you, you just take 50 percent of the then market cap that we just calculated out. So 10 billion, when we take go to 5 billion, if 1.5 billion turns into 5 billion, that's more than tripling within five years, which is obviously very, very high. In fact, you can calculate it, it but you're assuming a lot of things here, but you could calculate it so it has a much lower probability. In fact, you'll probably beat the market in it even if the probability is significant. I mean, the probability is significantly below 50%, very, very significantly below 50%. But remember, I'm also, Monster has a pretty high multiple. Mm-hmm. So you're assuming, I'm assuming two things. I'm one, assuming that you'll, can do this, which I don't necessarily believe. Uh, and then, so your sales growth will be really high in the next five years or whatever. But two, I'm also saying that your multiple will be as high as Monster, whereas Monster's multiple could collapse by 50 or 75 or whatever percent, we don't know, in a short period of time too. But yeah, on the probabilities, yes, we can, I mean, I could go through it exactly, but 
even if there's like a four out of five chance or something, I don't think it means you'll do worse in the market because I also picked a 0% decline mm-hmm. decline to nothing, which is unlikely if it doesn't happen. You're not going to have the stock go to nothing at this point. So, And I'm drinking a Peach Vibe, limited edition, sparkling white peach. First time having it. So head answer that question. And it kind of doesn't, yeah, it tastes good, but it tastes like every other drink they have. Okay. How do we calculate an insurer's, uh, i.e. progressive retention rate? Oh, you can't calculate it, but they can tell it to you. A lot of times if you look at companies, investor relations or like presentations and stuff like that, they'll break it out there. Yeah. You have to be very careful in terms of what they say exactly what the retention rate means. So it depends. The best calculation retention rate would just be a straight up retention rate thing that they tell you. However, you have to understand that for a lot of companies, your first year retention will be very poor. And then after that, retention will be a lot higher. So sometimes what they're giving you is retention rate on seasoned business, which you should pay a little more attention to if they say that or what they say in the footnotes and stuff. So like for a bank, it's not unusual for them to lose one out of three customers in the first year, but then to retain more than nine out of 10 if they make it through the first year. Um, And then I've seen really weird things with tech companies and stuff. Tech companies seem to like to use, um, basically they're using this dollar retention rate. So if they have a customer pool of 100 customers, they raise prices by 10% during the year. Um, They bundle some things so that they sell them another 10% of things, so they got 20%. But then actually 15% of the customers left them. They would say their retention rate is 105%. Mm Mm-hmm. So we actually did a podcast on that once. Yeah. So that's interesting. So it depends. You have to look carefully. I'd say a lot of them are, are using seasoned business, um, which is fine. It's like a good number to use and stuff. I, I don't disagree with that, but what it would be better is if they broke that out and said, here's our first year and here's our second year. So just read very carefully what they're saying. And if you can talk to investor relations or something, they'll clear, they'll clarify that for you. Actually retention rate, something that I think they're very comfortable telling you about. Usually companies know it and they, can tell you how they calculate what they put in their reports. Next question. Warning signs that a dividend cut is imminent. Always wanted to know more on that front. Um, I don't know. I would say, um, generally companies that cut dividends, I mean, with COVID and stuff, there's no sure that nothing that was going to happen. Uh, you have low free cash flow generation relative to earnings. Um, so poor quality of earnings, basically you have high asset growth often. Uh, this is contrary to what a lot of people expect, but companies that kind of just are stagnant or shrinking are usually not going to be a situation where they're going to be raising their dividend too aggressively. I have seen in like one case or something where they just kept raising their dividend, even though they weren't growing. But, um, normally what's going to happen instead is a worsening quality of the business while still actually growing quite a bit. That's also a big sign for like, um, credit problems and stuff too. People expect that it's like a company that stalls out and barely grows. And then it has problems from that, but that's usually not what happens. It's that they actually are trying to keep up the same growth rate but the quality is getting worse and worse. The good, the the, one of the best examples of this would be like, because we talked about this book a bunch, GE and lights out and stuff. That's a really classic example of this kind of thing. It's a company that's trying to achieve the same growth rate and stuff over time, but the quality of its earnings and everything is getting worse and worse. So poor cash flow uh, figures with it, pretty aggressive and like uh, insistence that you raise the dividend by a certain amount all the time. So I would say like focus on earnings per share instead of cash flow numbers, um, increasing leverage over time. Um, 
decreasing cash balances and things focus with a pretty aggressive growth rate in the actual dividend. Like, so trying to grow your dividend by 3% a year over time is not going to cause you a lot of problems, but targeting numbers of seven, eight, nine, 10% while your cash flow isn't really following that. So I would say as long as your free cash flow is consistently like things like free cash flow and even cash flow from operations, um, if they're consistently coming in above the growth rate in the dividend, I don't think you're that likely to have the problem. But where you will have the problem is if you're seeing that they've raised the dividend faster than they raise things like free cash flow. Free cash flow might be a little rough on the company. So you could say cash flow from operations. I would strongly say that if cash flow from operations does not grow as fast as the dividend, that's starting to be a warning sign. Mm -hmm. And if that's coupled with growth in debt, then definitely. Why they'll actually cut it can be things like they decide to do an acquisition. Mm -hmm. But if they hadn't had that problem in the first place, then they wouldn't need to cut the dividend. Speaking about Lights Out, I really recommend everyone to read it. I mean, they had an, an, like an internal audit team that would go to each business within GE and would think of ways it would be rewarded if you came up with almost like financial engineering mm -hmm. things to make profits look higher, which was totally legal by the way, but just like it didn't change anything of the quality of earnings. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the incentives there were just mind boggling. It's that's probably one of my top books I've read in 2020. Yeah. I think it was, was a great it book. Good. Believe it or not, here's something funny. Yeah. So uh, my Kindle, I lost my Kindle on our trip, guys. Okay. Right. I, I didn't tell anyone, but I lost it. All right. I called the hotels and <laughs> no one knew where it was. All right, guys. <laughs> so I bought a new Kindle. Jeff oh, offered, okay. he offered for me to have his old one, but oh. I didn't. And you were reading on yours when I got here today. So there you go. Okay. I read on landscape mode now. Have you ever read a landscape mode on the Kindle? No. It's actually a lot better yeah. than I thought it would. It's yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Someone recommended it on the internet. Um, I was looking at just reviews of this kindle i bought it's just the oasis but uh landscape mode try that out um next question how important are infinite returns on capital for an investment decision of yours is it more like the icing on the cake so this this is risks getting mathematical here but yeah. so there's way i think of it is has always been <laughs> it's you're sounding very mathematical but i've always said to people look um your returns in a stock are going to approach two potential constraints, two limits that they could bump up against. One is your initial yield in it and stuff. So how cheaply are you buying something? So, so this is why, it, like, if you buy something at a PE of one, mm -hmm. you can get incredibly high returns. Okay. And if you buy something that has infinite returns on capital, you can get incredibly high returns. The problem is that most things are going to fall really in between that. And so what will happen is like if you buy something at a P of one, it goes to a P of five in a year and you sell it. That's an amazing return. If you buy something with infinite returns on capital and hold it forever. OK, Amazon, we you know talked about it. It's like that's the kind of thing on a cash basis. It's had nearly infinite returns on capital and stuff for a long time. So that's why you can have a very high return, even though you paid a high price. Mm -hmm. So the answer is it's incredibly important as you approach anything that's a remotely high price. So it, it's really, really important to me. The only way that I'll pay meaningfully high prices that like, I mean, not even prices that even other value investors consider pretty good prices, like but 20 like, to 30 times yeah, earnings yeah. is if the company has infinite returns on capital, because without that, it gets a little tough to get the kinds of returns that we would want. One thing that I think of when buying a stock the common way of thinking about it is can this return in a reasonable way can this return 10 times in 15 years okay that's about a 17 percent annual return um 
the way you break that down is it's much easier if it's very cheap. So if you have a P of four, then it could go to 12 or even 16, or it could go to 20 if people really believe this is a great company. So if it does something like that, it barely needs to grow at all. All it needs to grow at is like, you know, four or 5% a year or something, or pay a four or 5% dividend yield if it goes from a P of four to 20. So it's often easier to find a company that's like completely um, just an okay company, perfectly good company that's trading insanely cheap. But if you're trying to say you're buying a company at an average PE, then infinite returns on capital become really important to me. So if you're seeing me buy something at 15, 20, 25 times earnings, you're not going to see me buying 25 times earnings probably. But if you're seeing numbers that are more normal PEs, 15, 20 and stuff, mm-hmm. then infinite returns on capital become very important. And also, by the way, retaining almost all your earnings become really important. Like I've looked at some things and talked to people about it. And one thing that will surprise them is with banks, um, for most banks, it's not as important as you think what the return on capital is because most banks pay too much out in dividends. But you do find a rare bank that actually has really good returns on equity and is retaining a huge amount. And so my valuation changes a lot because of that retention. And to your case about paying 25 times earnings and the business having infinite returns on capital, that's because you're paying a lot for that future growth? Or you want to look cheap for that future growth, I should say? Well, here's the deal. So like, I think I always flip it. I actually think of it in terms of that how much capital does it take to grow a certain amount? So let's say you pay 25 times free cash flow. Okay. So it has to be free cash flow, not just earnings. 25 times free cash flow gives you a 4% yield. Mm-hmm. Let's say you want 10, 11, 12% a year. Well, now you got to grow 6 to 8% a year. But if you're growing 6 to 8% a year with infinite returns on capital, see, without the infinite returns on capital, you then have to use some of your free cash flow. Mm-hmm. So that free cash flow is not incredible truly free people count it as free cash flow but it's actually being reinvested in the business so if it's four percent and that goes down to two percent then we have a problem because now i have to grow even two percent faster to get those kinds of numbers so i mean a way of looking at it is and it's not perfect but an approximation that's very easy for people to do in their head is free cash flow plus growth now this gets into issues of how long does that go on for does it go on for 100 years then it works but if it goes on for only a few years it doesn't work but let's put that aside free cash flow plus growth it's much easier usually to have a business that like has a true free cash flow yield of four or five percent and also grows four or five percent a year to give you a pretty good return um you know maybe not a lot better than the market but not worse uh that's a lot usually a lot easier than the reverse of like growing 10 percent a year or something like that mm-hmm. what happens is some people get excited about business that's growing 10 percent a year while reinvesting every dollar it has but actually that's only a mediocre return that's actually not that different than what the market will do mm-hmm. because you're using every dollar of your of your um, free cash flow to do that. So, yeah, it's fr- uh, the easiest way to think about it is free cash flow, meaning actual free cash flow we have to pay you even while we're growing, mm-hmm. plus growth. Yeah. And to his point about is it more like the icing on the cake? And your point about one PEs, it was J and J snacks food. What was it like? Five times, six times earnings. You remember what was training? Well, J and J was like eleven or something. Oh, it was eleven. Okay, and it went to the thirty. But uh, Village was got it. Yeah, so it went from yeah five to fifteen or something pretty quickly. Um, how would Jeff? 
how much would Jeff charge today for 20-year option rights on producing a Jeff Gannon investing documentary? And someone said, I suggest the title Behind the Flannel. <laughs> I charge a lot to discourage it from happening. So I think Oh, so you'd pull a Peter or you'd pull uh Paul Tudor Jones, huh? Is that it? Yeah. You remember we were talking about that, how he has a documentary out on him and he just has done everything over the years, even 20 years oh. later to get that video like gone. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah, I do the opposite of Stephen King. Stephen King, if he likes you or whatever to give you a chance, will like option uh, for like a dollar for you to do like a student film or something uh-huh. in one of his books. You can't do it like for a big commercial production. Uh, I would do the reverse of that. I would just make it incredibly expensive to make sure it doesn't happen. I would say Trey should reach out to uh, uh, the agent, Andrew at Focus Compound. Okay. I got 10% royalty, kind of like the Ari Gold. We like, uh, that's Entourage for people that don't yeah. know. Jeff likes Entourage. We like Entourage. Um, next question. Do you agree with Bill Gross? Bill Gross says investors should use leverage right now to boost returns since central banks are unlikely to raise rates in the foreseeable future. Bill Gross said, you've got to lever. You've got to be able to borrow. Um, we won't be using leverage. But... Um, uh, what he's saying makes some sense. So, and mm-hmm. that's actually part of the problem of like, you know, rates being here where they are. Um, it makes a lot of, I mean, certainly for businesses and stuff, it makes a lot of sense for them to just borrow and buy all sorts of things that aren't, um, you know, when they wouldn't normally do. But that's the point of interest rate policy mm-hmm. is to encourage investments and stuff that other otherwise wouldn't happen mm-hmm. well to encourage real economic activity that otherwise wouldn't happen to encourage building a road uh you know build it you know because you can issue bonds and stuff they cost like nothing uh you know building a housing development that you wouldn't otherwise do i mean years ago the example i was giving was railroads and stuff so yeah but like should companies take on debt and recapitalize and everything yeah unfortunately i mean like I would worry about that, but yes, it would make sense. There's rare, there's almost no companies you can think of that we would invest in stuff where they really shouldn't take on a ton of debt and buy back their stock or take on a ton of debt and even make a so-so acquisition, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, there's some companies that can, after taxes and stuff, it's, I mean, you could finance some things at three and a half percent probably for a good long time mm-hmm. after, after tax, you know, after you mm-hmm. count the tax break. Um, so we're past, we're at 25 okay. minutes, but I, there was a couple that I actually wanted All to right. see. What is Jeff's thoughts on health and longevity? My health and longevity? Who's health and longevity? <laughs> Let's just say, um, generally speaking. I don't really have thoughts on health and longevity. Um, and then there was one question. Where is it? We have a lot of questions. Um, this one. Any thoughts on Peter Kamen and his style investing as exhibited in his holdings like CLWY and TTSH. Um, I've read the, the <laughs> so documents. This was my response. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I've, as you can imagine, I've read the, uh, yeah, the uh-huh. what is it? The, um, I guess it's a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've read yeah. the lawsuit, all the documents related For to the lawsuit. Title shop. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on that style of investing? That's something you would Cowboys do. a little too. And mm-hmm. Cowboys is around here. Locations it sure are around is. here and stuff. Yeah. Uh, some of them, yeah. Um, I followed them both, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've looked at both stocks. Yes. I definitely looked at both stocks and looked at it a lot more than you might think. Um, and yeah, and read up the documents and stuff. Uh, uh, whatever disclosures are public about that and stuff I've read. Yeah, what else? 
with that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, on his style? On his style? I mean, what he's, you know, in that lawsuit for, I guess you could say. I feel like, like what he did. Oh, I just feel like Callaway's and Tile Shop are kind of different situations. Uh-huh. Um, Tile Shop, for business reasons and stuff, I'm somewhat... I don't know. I was somewhat reluctant with the business of Tile Shop more so than Callaway's. Callaway's, I felt like I could understand better, and there was hard value in the real estate and stuff. Tile Shop is a very high gross margin, um, but kind of high need to generate a certain amount of volume and stuff and could be potentially cyclical. So I feel like it's a very leveraged sort of thing if it works out, but it sounds operational to me, you know, that way of like, if you get it to work, um, I don't know. Tile shop just struck me as more operationally complex than Callaway's. What did you think? No, that's probably true. I think he's probably asking like company going dark, cratering the stock price and then, you know, buying up a lot of stock sort of, that whole side of what's going on with that company. Uh, yeah, I've read the document. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I find it interesting that, yeah, that like some, yeah, I don't know. I, I've read the stuff about it and thought about that. Sure. You know, but that's more of a question of like, would I invest alongside him or mm-hmm. something? Sure. And like, would, would I trust that? I mean, that's the thing you read like the tile shop, like, message boards and stuff and people are like oh well, he did this but you know it's like but he's gonna make the stock go, or they feel very bullish i'm like would you want to invest alongside someone like that in that situation i don't know and to be fair i did also read things where i said to you i was like i think there's more i, I don't know i'm falling into it and stuff I got the feeling that someone was upset about things that were other than just what happened in that case, actually. I don't know all the details, mm-hmm. but I think someone felt personally hurt about some things and and uh, some of their... It's personal. They became personal in some way, sure. Back you for never vengeance. know all the story there yeah. with that. Um, it's fun to watch from the sidelines, I guess, or read about it, I guess. We're not involved in any way. Right. We have looked at both. We've been yes. following uh, TTSH for I think over it's a year now. Incredibly unlikely I would invest in either one, and I don't feel unless I found out a lot more about him and stuff that I would invest in a company alongside him. Though it could happen accidentally. I mean, that is a thing that could happen with anyone in that space because it's a pretty small space. We invest in. It is a very small space. We've learned. Some Come of, across yeah. a few people. I'm like, oh my gosh, this person again. <laughs> so um, yeah, we we sometimes invest in some companies that are in the same sort of categories and stuff like that. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and I. Sorry that we haven't or that we weren't able to get to all of the questions. Be on the lookout next Monday. We'll do a call for questions and then we will do our best to answer all of them. We're going to dedicate two episodes a week to it. Um, it's good to answer any questions on everyone's mind as much as we possibly can. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. Hit that subscribe button and we will see you in the next podcast.